I'm Natalie. And I'm Christina. We're two best friend registered dietitians living their best lives in the beach cities of Los Angeles, California. We're here to serve you with evidence-based knowledge, a little storytelling, and a whole lot of laughs. And, and this, this is, is the, the Crunchy, Crunchy Dietitians Podcast. Podcast. Well, right. that counts as dairy, though. I feel like. Right? Okay. Yeah. I think I was I think separating you said it. it mentally, I and then said I said it, it together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, guys. We are back for another episode of the Crunchy Dietitians. Sup, y'all? Sup. Okay, so today we wanted to talk about the new USDA dietary guidelines. Um, we're also going to touch a little bit on the new nutrition facts label as well. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. But first I want to do a quick shout out to my sister, Alexis Craven. She actually just started a podcast. Go Alexis. She has one with her friend, Sarah. They are really good friends. They met in high school. Sarah has traveled abroad and lived in a bunch of different countries. Super interesting person. Um, currently lives in Spain, I believe. And then my sister, is a photographer and has lots of experience, just like life experience with having gone through really, really crazy things in her life with loss and stuff. And they just come together and they keep it super real and they have conversations about literally life. So great lifestyle podcast, go check them out. Their podcast is called TBH, you already know, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So go check them out, TBH, you already know. Okay, so now we're going to jump into our episode today on the guidelines. We're just going to start with a little history, a little history lesson, because, you know, history was everybody's favorite subject in school, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, the federal government has actually been providing guidance on what we can eat and drink to improve our health for over a hundred years. And this has been happening through many different media. The USDA and the Department of Human Health Services, or the HHS, published the first ever dietary guidelines in February of 1980. So they've been around for a while. We update them every five years. So the last one was from 2015 to 2020, and now in 2021, we have new ones. So that's the 2020 to 2025. Those are the current dietary guidelines that we are going to be talking about today. So basically, the guidelines are the golden standard for nutrition in the scientific community, and they're a really easy way for recommendations to be in one place for the public. And it used to be more about meeting nutrition needs and preventing nutrition deficiencies related to diseases um, and preventing things like food scarcity related to poverty. Yeah. I mean, back then, obviously, you know, it was more about preventing, you know, nutrition related or deficiency related disease. Um, and prevent, you know, like Natalie said, preventing food scarcity, there was a lot of poverty. Um, But as time went on, you know, especially even before the 1950s, but around the 1950s, we've eradicated a lot of those deficiency related diseases. Um, You know, you can find things like grains that are fortified, you know, with B vitamins and iron. Um, We also fortify with vitamin D, calcium and vitamin C. So things like rickets, which is related to a vitamin uh, D deficiency, where you would see that bow leggedness or scurvy that caused skin issues um, from vitamin C deficiency, those are pretty much long gone, right? So 
the way that we, you know, interact with the dietary guidelines and how it's changed over time is, you know, different. Now we look at it more related to uh, chronic disease prevention and uh, management. So things like, you know, type two diabetes, cancer, heart disease. Um, So we kind of focus on nutrition related to those things uh, for the most part. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at now with the current dietary guidelines, right? We've, we've moved from like needing to eliminate hunger, not to say that that's not still an issue in certain parts of the country and definitely certain parts of the world, but our main focus now, because the majority of issues are related to chronic diseases is in managing those diseases through our food. So the new dietary guidelines, um, Christine and I looked them over and we pretty much summed it up in four main takeaways. So we're going to go through those four now. The first is that the new guidelines recommend a healthy dietary pattern at every stage of life. So this is really cool because they don't always recommend it based on life life stage, right? But throughout the life cycle, um, then our needs change dramatically, actually. So this uh, takes into consideration everything from pre-birth onto you know older adulthood. So pre-birth would be pregnancy, of course, and then as a newborn, as an infant, through lactation for both the mother and the child, um, into becoming a toddler, growing into an adolescent, and then being a young adult and even into older adulthood. So the specific recs um, on breastfeeding exclusively, for example, they recommend for at least six months. That's now included in the guidelines. When and what to introduce as first solid foods for your infant is now included, which I think is super cool. Mm-hmm. And very, very important because we are learning more and more how important that that is, that, that stage of life, right? Like introducing new foods, making sure that we're giving whole foods and foods of all different textures and colors and flavors and, you know, a variety of, of produce and even like animal foods and just everything so that this young being can learn to like a variety of foods. And then they're going to go into an adult who will be more willing to try new things and just have a, you know, a wider um, palate, which is really important for them and their health into their adult life. And um, recommending introducing peanut containing foods to infants is included in the guidelines, which I think is awesome because, you know, we've seen a rise in allergies, especially to foods, but just in general. And this might have a lot to do with um, also our cleanliness practices and how we use antibiotic or bacterial wipes and antibiotics and things like that obsessively in our culture. But back to the peanut containing foods, introducing these foods to an infant, especially a high risk infant that might be, you know, at risk for a peanut allergy between the ages of four and six months could potentially decrease that risk of them developing a peanut allergy. So I think this is so cool. It's so different than what we had previously previously thought, which was that if they're at high risk to develop an allergy, we need to avoid that food right. at all costs, right? right? So it's like, this is like the opposite. It's like, no, give them the food. Exactly. Um, it's the opposite of what we actually thought. I just find that really interesting, especially because peanut allergies are so common now. Yes, exactly. So, and um, I'm sure that this could go for all the different, the main mm-hmm. like eight allergens, but specifically they talk about peanuts. But I just love this take first takeaway of the new guidelines and the stages of life and how we can have now recommendations for all stages because again, our needs are going to change throughout our whole life cycle. Yeah, I agree. I love that too. I mean, I think that's a great point. You know, um, calories change, nutrient needs change, our metabolisms change. So obviously all of that's going to change too. Um, another thing that they added in, you know, another takeaway from the dietary guidelines is that every person can benefit from a healthy dietary pattern. Um, one thing that they didn't, you know, mention in the last dietary guidelines is that 
It's really important to take note of, you know, our nutrition needs related to our personal preferences and also our culture and our traditions, right? Um, You know, obviously there's cultural differences in the foods that we eat. And I think historically in the dietetics community, um, there's been a lot of conversation around, you know, a lot of the information that we have to provide to patients is about American foods, right? And there's not a lot of information on maybe Japanese foods or African foods. And these things are super important to take note of when we're counseling and speaking to our patients, because we need to be equipped with that knowledge of what nutrients are in cultural foods. So I think that one's huge. Um, And then also that budget should be accounted for in planning as well. So obviously, if you have a low or high budget, that's going to change um, the foods that you have available to you. And you're going to have to kind of focus nutrition in various ways with that um, based on what you're able to buy with that. Yeah, I love that. I think that that part's super important because, I mean, it's easy for us to get caught up in like, recommending specific foods over and over again as like this is what's healthy right Right. like have oatmeal for breakfast with non-fat you know cow's milk and then for lunch you need to have a salad and then for dinner it needs to be turkey breast right baked in the oven dry af and it's like nasty you know it's like that's what you have to do to be healthy variance in that you know right and it's like not everyone eats like that not everyone wants to eat like that not everybody's culture adheres to those types of food practices and that's okay you don't have to eat that way in order to be healthy so i love that as a country now as a nation we are actually reflecting that and putting value into that as like part of health. Right. And the budget part too is huge because I think that certain things get a bad rap that are a lot more affordable, like canned foods or frozen foods. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, anything that's not organic is like, you know, not as good for you or whatever, or like you're, you're at a loss if you can't afford it, which is just also not true. Right. And that also doesn't fit not only into people's budgets, but also their cultural traditions. Like some people, you know, they, I mean, I guess growing your own food might be considered organic, but maybe they go to a specific market that they've been going to and that their families have been going to for like 20, 30, 40 years, you know, and like they don't have organic foods available in that little market and their produce section is super tiny and, you know, everything's imported. That's fine. Like, that's okay. You can create healthy meals around what's available to you, what you're used to um, and what fits into your cultural and traditional lifestyle. Absolutely. So the third takeaway from the new guidelines are that it focuses on getting the most bang for your buck. So that's kind of my summarized version of saying, basically, we want you to still focus on nutrient-dense foods within the calorie range that you should be eating to maintain your weight or lose weight if that's what you're trying to do or put on muscle and gain weight if that's what you're trying to do. It should always be a focus on nutrient-dense foods. So this isn't anything really that new, but just to kind of clarify what does that really mean, if we look at the statistics, um, 80% of Americans are not getting in adequate amounts of vegetables, fruit, or dairy. So this isn't really news if we think about it, but if we think about the number, 80%, that's, that's immense. That that's is like, mind-blowing. that's probably you or even me. Like, you know, I don't always eat a vegetable every single day. I'm not even going to lie to you oh, guys. Same. There Especially are days when now. I don't eat. Yeah, there are days <laughs> where I do not eat a single vegetable. It's like mm-hmm. pure carbs and fat. And just so you guys know, that's normal. That is normal, healthy eating. And that's going to happen sometimes, you know? Right. Yeah, that's going to happen sometimes. And we're going to touch on, what, you know, how, how, much, how often should we be eating nutrient-dense? And like, is it okay to like sometimes not? And the answer to that is yes, it is okay. Right. Um, but 80% of Americans not getting in adequate vegetable, fruits, and dairy is a lot. So of course there's room for improvement there. But 
you know, it's important to note that, that there are deficiencies there because that reflects in our nutrient intake, right? So that's going to reflect in the amount of vitamins that we're getting in minerals. So we see deficiencies in things like calcium, potassium, uh, fiber even, and vitamin D. Those are the four main ones. And we'll kind of see this reflected in the new food label. We're going to talk about the new uh, nutrition facts label in a second here. But I think the focus of this takeaway is just that, you know, nutrient dense foods are still really important. That hasn't changed. And there's a reason for that. It's because consistently over the years, we are still like not hitting the mark for the vegetables, fruits, and dairy, right? which is reflected in the amount of nutrients that we're getting from those foods or the you know nutrients that we would be getting if we were eating those foods, which right. would prevent the deficiencies. And I think we just need to focus on, you know, obviously, like we were talking about the accessibility, like, you know, canned foods and frozen foods, like Natalie was saying, are totally fine. And also just finding a way to make these foods taste good. I feel like a lot of people just think these foods are really boring. And so if you just That's equip huge, yourself yeah. with the knowledge, maybe just look up some recipes literally just go on food network you know maybe there is a little bit of sugar in there or a little bit of sodium in there but if that's what it's going to take to make you want to eat those foods that's okay so we're going to go over what those numbers look like now too yeah it's fine to add things to make something more satisfying like you don't have to steam your broccoli or right. like you know eat it raw just raw broccoli i barf. love broccoli i just don't like but raw, broccoli. raw broccoli or carrots is not appetizing to me at or all celery and that's fine. I just don't eat raw broccoli. You know, like no. I actually don't mind steamed broccoli, but if you don't want it raw or steamed, like you can roast it. Herbs are your friend, like get creative. Right. Like Christina said, Google things, watch the Food Network. They're, go on Pinterest. Like make you can fun. get so many ideas. They have yeah. instant pots nowadays and crock pots and so many things to make things so simple for you to just throw it in. Texture, press a button flavor, and go. color, you know, there's yeah. so many things that you can do there. Like Absolutely. But yeah, you making it taste good is a really big, I think, issue. And where there's a shortfall is that people think they're bitter and they don't taste good. And I don't like the texture. I don't like the flavor, but you can modify it so that it is to your liking in right. terms of texture and flavor. You have to season them up. So anyways, the fourth one is that essentially the things that we've always aimed to limit, we still want to focus on. So things like the added sugar, the saturated fat, the sodium and the calories, these are for years, we've known that these are critical, important things to take note of, we need to look at these things on the nutrition label. When it comes to calories, obviously choosing our whole grains, our beans, nuts, seeds, lean meats, lean dairy, fruits, vegetables, of course, these things are very nutrient dense, low calorie, we want to limit foods and beverages that have the added sugar, like I said, um, limit adding the sodium yourself, not just, you know, with the foods that it's in, which we'll go over. And then foods that are high in saturated fat, as well as alcohol. The 80-20 diet was kind of a popular thing for a while. A lot of people were saying, focus on 80% of your foods being nutrient dense, and then 20% being actually just fun foods. But now with the dietary guidelines, we found that 85% should be nutrient dense in the diet. So again, focusing on those whole foods um, as much as possible. And then 15% of our calories can be coming from those fun discretionary foods. Um, it's also important to consider that even in that 15% of foods in the diet, things like maybe it's like ice cream, right? Or cheese or something like that. Even though these are fun foods, a lot of these foods are still fortified. So we're going to be getting things like B vitamins. We're going to be getting things like iron. We might, you know, if it's ice cream, we're still going to be getting some calcium, um, maybe a little protein, things like that. But in these 15% of discretionary foods, these foods typically have some of those other things that we're trying to, you know, limit or stay away from like the added sugar, sodium, or saturated fat. 
Yeah, exactly. So now to get into the fun stuff, we're going to talk about in depth a little bit more um, the things that we are trying to be more mindful of. So I'll start with added sugars. We do want to keep that to less than 10% of total calories per day. So this is in the new guidelines. It is the same as it's kind of been for a while now. Currently, average American consumes about 13% of their calories from added sugars. And most of that is coming from sugar-sweetened beverages. So things like soda, even like sweetened teas, even those like vitamin waters and things like that, they have sugars in them, you guys. It might sound healthy because it says vitamin and it says water, but if it's anything sweetened, that's a sugar-sweetened beverage. And it's just so easy to just gulp it down. Um, that's the danger, I think, with them in liquid form is that it's really easy to consume a lot at once. And then after sugar, sugar-sweetened sugar beverages is going to be desserts and sweet treats. Um, and this is for everyone over the age of one years old. So even like two-year-olds, which is kind of crazy to think about that they're oh, yeah. consuming these sugar-sweetened beverages. But it's true. So um, we're going to give you guys little swaps for each category that we talk about here. So in the added sugars category, uh, something that you could do is if you're used to drinking a Coke every single day or you love Sprite or something with dinner, um, try to swap it out with something like Zevia or something that is (laughs) represent Represent. something that is similar, right? You don't want to cold turkey go to water or sparkling water even because sure, sparkling water has that carbonation, which is part of it. But the main thing is you're getting a lot of high fructose corn syrup in that soda. So you're getting a huge dopamine release with all that sugar. Uh, It tastes great. And it's, uh, you know, borderline addictive. So Starting with something like Xevia where you're still getting the sweetness is going to help you kind of taper. Then maybe you can go to something like LaCroix and eventually just plain old water. And um, the Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee actually recommends no more than 6% of your calories coming from added sugars. But I think in the guidelines, they ended up going with the less than 10 because it's just a little more realistic trying to keep it to less than 10% of total calories a day. And I know it's hard to think of like, okay, I'm looking at the label and what is less than 10% of these calories look like. So if you look at the website for the American Heart Association, you can check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. They recommend it in grams, which I think is more straightforward because that's what's on the nutrition facts label is, you know, grams of added sugar. So it's no more than 25 grams per day for women and then no more than 36 grams per day for men. So that can kind of help you. Maybe you want to divide that by three meals a day. Maybe you want to save that for one big slice of cake at your best friend's birthday party. It doesn't matter, but try to aim for staying under those grams per day. Right. I think that adds a really good point of reference. You know what I mean? And again, you get to kind of choose where do you want to get that sugar allotment? Do you want to get it from, you know, sweet sauces and dressings? Or do you want to get it from like a piece of cake? Like Natalie said, personally, I'd rather have it from cake Cake, all day, uh, right? Or (laughs) cookies. I'm such a cookie monster. I want to eat my my calories. Like I want to eat my sugar. I don't want to drink drink, it. I don't want to drink them. Uh I don't want to just have them disappear in a, in a salad dressing or, you know, especially if you're making those kind of things from home, I think that really empowers you to kind of reduce your added sugar intake because you can use something like stevia, you know, and you just really, there's so many options out there that, you know, provide that sweetness that you're looking for that you don't need the added sugar. Right. right? And it's, it's hidden in so many things like pasta sauces and protein bars and cereals. Wheat bread has molasses in it. Wheat bread is the like biggest wheat bread and a cereal, even like healthy looking cereals, like brand cereals and stuff are probably the biggest culprits. And Absolutely. pasta sauces are they another They trick one. you so much. Barbecue sauce, ketchup, like literally mm-hmm. everything has sugar, you guys. It's nuts. Yeah. So um, another thing that we really want to pay attention to per the uh, dietary guidelines is the saturated fat. So we, again, 
Less than 10% is what we're looking for. If you have heart disease also, it's generally recommended to keep under 7% if you've had some sort of cardiac event um, and you need to look at your saturated fat even more so. Saturated fat is exactly what it sounds like. It's something that's hard or saturated at room temperature. So if you think of something like a nice steak and you see that fat, that fatty part on the side of it, which personally I love, I'm not even going to lie. It all the flavor so flavors. All the flavor flavors. That's the saturated fat. So animal products are the main source of saturated fat, fatty cuts of meat. So things like a nice fatty steak, you know, most cuts of pork, except the loin, you know, the skin of the chicken or turkey, whatever poultry, those are all sources of saturated fat, as well as uh, milk and dairy. So yogurt, milk, cheese, those are all sources of saturated fat. Also tropical oils. So Tropical oils include things like palm oil and coconut oil, right? Um, and these can raise our cholesterol. So this is why we want to keep it to at least under 10% per day. Um, interestingly, only 23% of Americans actually eat this recommended amount and keep to the less than 10% recommendation. So clearly we you know, can do a little bit better here. It's just kind of good to know where we're at. The recommendation for trans fats and cholesterol is to just keep them as low as possible. We really, really want to keep the trans fat as low as possible and kind of eliminate it if we can. As of 2018, actually, trans fats, which if you read the label, you'll see as hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated oils are no longer generally recognized as safe by the FDA. So Manufacturers are really looking to eliminate the use of trans fats, and that's why we're starting to see an increase in the use of things like palm kernel oil. Because again, that's a saturated fat. It's more hard at room temperature, so it lends to a certain mouthfeel. Um, it helps to kind of stabilize the product. Again, that's a saturated fat. So although it's not as bad for our bodies as trans fat, it's still a saturated fat. So we want to limit those as well. And then keeping cholesterol as low as possible, it's good to just say this as a blanket statement because we now know that Individually, we have differences in our genetics that cause differences in metabolizing cholesterol. So some individuals will metabolize cholesterol in a specific way that leads to elevated cholesterol, and some people just don't have that issue. Uh, so it's simple to just say, let's keep the cholesterol as low as possible. Look to replace saturated fat in the diet with plant sources of fat. So those are things like avocados, nuts and seeds, olive oil, those are all better for you. So again, as usual, we really kind of know this already, right? Plants over animal sources. Not to say that animal sources are bad, but when we are choosing animal sources, choose lean ones, take off the skin, things like that. Anywhere we can cut the animal fat is excellent for our health. Yeah, again, saturated fat does exist naturally in foods that are good for us. Like you said, animal products are in, by no means like unhealthy uh, inherently, like they actually contain a lot of vitamins and minerals, especially Absolutely. things like vitamin A versus like carotenoids, right? So mm -hmm. we need that actual vitamin A. Right. We also need carotenoids. B so vitamins, yeah, iron. Tons of things in yeah. animal products. Eggs, for example. Uh, I don't like the word superfood. I think, Christina, you could also agree like yeah. superfood is kind of it just puts a really large, uh, a very heavy weight on on food. Yeah, which Not I don't like to do. Diet. Right, exactly, because it's really a culmination of what we eat over our lifetime that is going to make up our health and not any one food. Right. However, if I was going to label something a superfood, it would be eggs, and that's an animal product. But Fuck they yeah, have, I love eggs. They have literally every vitamin and mineral besides, like, vitamin C within right. them. So 
yes, that is like a superfood. It's like a multivitamin. But right. anyway, right. next we're going to talk about sodium. So sodium rex, uh, 1,200 milligrams for children 1 to 3, 1,500 milligrams for children 4 to 8, 1,800 milligrams for uh, children 9 to 13, so into adolescence, and then anyone 14 or older is going to be 2,300 milligrams. So to give you an idea, like, what does that look like? That's about a teaspoon of salt. So imagine a teaspoon, look at your, you know, look at your finger, like your fingernail, and then kind of draw a circle a little bit around it. Like that's a teaspoon. So it's not a lot of salt, right? And obviously you're not going to be putting that all in one meal. And actually most of the sodium that we ingest is not actually from adding sodium or salt while we're cooking or at the dinner table. It's through processed and packaged foods. Um, And they did some research around this when they were writing the new dietary guidelines and found that the number one source of sodium intake was actually sandwiches, which I at first thought was super strange. I was like, what the fuck? What what does (laughs) a sandwich have to do with a ton of sodium? But if you think about it, it is literally like just a stack of a bunch of items that contain you know, usually a lot more sodium than maybe the average food, like cold cuts, right? Like deli meat, very high in sodium. Um, cheese, high in sodium naturally. Bread, high in sodium naturally. You have to remember, you guys, the sodium is going to help preserve the food. So all these foods are meant to kind of be able to sit in the fridge for, you know, more than a couple of days, right? So the sodium is helping to do that and helping to inhibit any growth of mold, bacteria, etc. Of course, this isn't going to work forever, but it is actually a preservative. So there is a reason why they put it into processed foods, but because it is put into so many processed foods, we need to be mindful of that. So I just thought it was interesting that sandwiches was like the number one thing. And the reason that we have these recommendations for sodium in the first place, it's all based on risk for developing hypertension, right? Which is high blood pressure and also cardiovascular disease or any kind of heart related issues to our cardiovascular system. So this is super important because A, this is like the number one killer of preventable diseases is cardiovascular. So if we can prevent this, we want to do so, which is why it's in the guidelines. And to put it into perspective, most people in the United States over the age of one, which is like most people in general, consume over 3,300 milligrams of sodium a day, which if you think about it, that's a thousand milligrams over what's recommended. So that's a lot. And this is affecting, you know, hypertension and cardiovascular disease. That's why we see this chronic disease as such a big problem in this country because of all the sandwiches we're eating and all the processed foods that we're eating, right? So a swap for the sodium part, you guys, would really be like, you know, if you're a chip person or, you know, you like sandwiches, making the sandwich at home, maybe instead of getting it at your favorite deli or like not getting it from your favorite deli all the time, being mindful of the sodium you see on labels when you buy these processed foods. I'm not going to sit here and tell you to never buy a processed food again, because I think that that is not wise as a recommendation because it's not realistic and it's not something that I expect you to implement into your life because let's be honest, like we're going to sometimes eat foods that are simple and convenient because life is not right. So we, we need that sometimes we need to just be able to grab and satisfy. And it just tastes good. Like I'm not going to tell you that if you love crunchy things or chips that you can't have chips, you know, cause right. if someone told me I couldn't have cookies, I would be extremely upset. Yeah. I would be really like, it's taking okay. a part of you away is what it's doing. Right. So like maybe you're not someone who's super into food or you're not a foodie, but I'm a foodie. And I know I can speak for Christina as well. When I say that, like, oh, yeah. that's a huge part of my life is right. being in the kitchen and cooking or going out to eat, which of course we can't really do right now, but you know, you going out to enjoy new foods. 
I love doing that. That's a huge part of who I am. And giving that up would be a tragedy, to be honest. So like, I would never ask you to do that. But just to be mindful, like if you do eat a lot of like, for example, potato chips, that has a lot of sodium. So instead of buying the huge family style bag and taking it to the couch when you put on Netflix and just reaching into the bag and eating it, it might be a matter of buying the small little individual packed bags, or maybe you do buy the big bag, but you portion it out into your own little Ziplocs and you say, okay, on Friday night, when I sit down to watch Netflix, that's my treat. Or, you know, buying unsalted nuts. If you love to snack on nuts, love that's it. great. They're healthy. Be mindful of your portion because it's a good fat, but it's still fat, right? So we want to be mindful. But again, instead of buying the salted ones that are cooked in oil like maybe you don't need that extra oil because they already have fat in them which is great and maybe you don't want to have them be salted because you'd rather put salt on something else or whatever you know so just making these swaps being mindful of like hey I know I eat salted nuts and I like my chips and I love sandwiches and I add salt to my eggs in the morning okay that's four things that are pretty salty can you maybe modify two of those so start small make it realistic but there are definitely things we can do to swap and try to get down from this 3300 milligrams a day average down to that recommendation of 2300 absolutely And the last one is alcohol. So obviously, you know, this is sort of a fun one, especially during quarantine times. Kidding, kind of. Uh, But (laughs) I found it interesting that on the dietary guidelines, uh, they mentioned that those that drink alcohol have an increased risk of death for all causes compared to those who do not drink. Just kind of an interesting little factoid that they added in there. Personally, I'm okay with that. I do want to have a glass of wine or a little beer sometimes, right? But in all seriousness, it's not going to kill you if you have a little bit of, you know, moderate alcohol consumption here and there. But this is why they put in the recommended amounts per the research. First, it's important to actually know, well, what does one drink actually look like? One 12 ounce regular beer at 5% alcohol. Also, I just want to say for my dietitians out there, I think this is so funny because in my notes, I have ETOH. So I don't know how you guys say it, but I just call it ETO all the time. And it's like killing me because I'm trying not to just be like, blah, 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 ETO. Like, um, but anyways, so one drink would be a 12 ounce beer at a 5% ETO or alcohol, um, five fluid ounces of wine at 12% alcohol. Um, and just so you know, one glass of wine, five ounces is about where the glass starts to curve up. So that's not a lot. Um, this is I, like a small pour, you guys. <laughs> right. Like I typically pour like three of those, um, which is fine sometimes. It's normal. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not the recommended intake, which we'll talk about in a second, but it happens, right? It's good to just be conscious of it. Lastly, uh, a one and a half fluid ounce of 80 proof liquor at 40% alcohol is also one drink. So if you have your little red solo cups, throw back to the college days, that little line at the bottom is pretty much one and a half fluid ounces of liquor. So that would look like a shot. So the recommendation per the dietary guidelines is two drinks or less per day for men and one drink or less per day for women. They also recommend that if you don't currently drink that you don't start drinking It does provide calories, which is a unit of energy, right? So it provides us energy. It provides us calories, which, you know, in excess can be stored as fat, but alcohol doesn't provide us with any sort of nutrition. So there's no micronutrients. There's no fiber. There's no anything, you know, that we really need to be getting from alcohol. With the exception of red wine, I think actually that would be the only thing, the resveratrol. Yeah, absolutely. But but everything else. Even in beer, there's like some things that are fine for us. That's true. Um, We could do a whole episode just on all of these subtopics. Right. (laughs) But if you're getting a large amount of your calories from alcohol, we just really 
it's not what the bulk of our diet should be from. So sticking to the two drinks or less per day for men and one drink or less per day for women is a great reference point. It's actually interesting because the advisory committee recommended to lower it to one drink per day for both women and men, but that was not included on this year's dietary guidelines. And again, I think it's just kind of going back to the real big theme of this year's updates is that we have to take into account what's realistic and what are our personal preferences, what are our cultural preferences. And I think even when it comes down to alcohol, um, we have, you know, influence from those outside things there. We have you know, holidays where we might, you know, for in my family, for example, whenever, whenever someone comes over to the house, actually, my grandpa gets really excited. Um, if someone's like parents come over, he'll be like, Oh, welcome in, welcome in. Do you want a stumble? Do you want a stumble? Like a stumble, like a little, a little shot of our upslut or our, we have this like plum uh, brandy that's really popular. Shlivovitz. If good. you're Slavic, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. But Anyways, so he gets really excited. That's a part of our culture. That's how we welcome people into the house. Do you want to have a shot, a drink of something? Um, Obviously, at the holidays, we're going to have some champagne or whatever. So there's going to be times where it's not really realistic to drink one, one drink per day. It's important to just remember these are the guidelines. If we can stick to them as closely as possible, then that's great. Yeah, because these calories, again, are still calories, and this would fit into your discretionary 15%. So just just be mindful. You know, the two drinks per day for men, that's 14 drinks in a week. That's kind of a lot, in my opinion. I right. honestly think that the one drink a day with the seven maybe is, like, a little healthier. But that's just my personal opinion. But like, that's not to say that if you're having more than that, that that's bad. That's up to you. And as an adult, we're allowed to choose for ourselves what that looks like. And, of course, all the things are going to come into consideration there, including traditionally and culturally what have we done but it never hurts to sit back and maybe do a slight assessment on what those discretionary calories in our diet are and where are they coming from and is that how we want to keep it you know we could always decide that hey I could go from two drinks a day to one and you know maybe add in an extra vegetable or add in an extra fruit I think sometimes we talk a lot about taking away right like Mm -hmm. I need to drink less I need to eat less of this I can't have this I need to avoid this I need to cut this out but I think if we could focus on what could we add in Mm -hmm. um, that was another big point in the dietary guidelines is Mm -hmm. focus on what you can add in rather than taking away I love that shift in perspective it's sort of a more positive take on reaching the same goal and I think mentally that does something for us um love that All right. So that wraps up the dietary guidelines, which is really interesting to note that things haven't really changed much since like 1980 when the first ones came out. We were looking at back in 1977 when they came out with the goals for America or whatever. It was like the first like is preceded the guidelines. What they recommended was very similar to the things that we still recommend today, with the exception of a few small tweaks that we are, you know, learning from the literature, which is awesome. But yeah, now we're going to dive into the new nutrition facts label. So the label was updated in 2016, which it was five years ago now, which is crazy to me. And this month, actually January, is the last month until all consumer packaged goods must be updated to have the new label on the package. The goal here is just like the goal with the dietary guidelines. We want to reflect the current scientific information because that is what we're using as our measure, as our, you know, where do we need to make changes? Is there, is there something that's changed since we put out the last guidelines or is there something that's changed since we made rec- recommendations for the last label? So what is different? The serving size font is larger and also bold and the serving sizes themselves have been updated. So 
instead of something saying like, let's take ice cream, for example, it used to be like half a cup, I think was the standard serving size. I think they've upped it to at least two thirds of a cup or even three quarters of a cup, because let's be honest, who the hell eats half a cup of ice cream? It's just like (laughs) cereal, like who the hell eats half a cup of cereal? So they've updated it to be more um, representative of what the average person is actually eating of the food that the label is for. So um, calories, the font for calories is also larger, important, right? Because that's something that we want to take note of when we're looking at the label, of course. Um, the DV, the percent DV, which stands for daily values, have been updated to better reflect what the needs are and what the food is providing based on the new serving sizes. So it's still the same that a 5% or less daily value means that it's low in that nutrient and a 20% or more daily value means it's high in that nutrient. So if we put that into a little bit of perspective, if it says, you know, you're getting 4% of your daily value for fiber, that's pretty low, right? We want to maybe be a little bit more on the 20% or higher side for fiber because we don't usually get adequate fiber in the diet. And then if it says 25% of your daily value for sodium, the sodium line, you know, that's high. So we want to maybe aim for less than that 20%. So that's kind of how you would use that when you read the label itself. And then another new thing is that they are now listing added sugars. Yay. I think this was my favorite part about the new label because it was very hard to try to decipher how many added sugars out of the total carbohydrates listed there were just by, you know, looking at the nutrition um, or the um, ingredients list. Christine and I and many dietitians can, we know what an added sugar is and what that would look like on the ingredients list, but not everybody is going to know that and not everyone's going to understand how does that translate into how many added sugars I'm eating. So I love that they added that. That's super important, especially because it's one of those things we want to be mindful of, right? Yeah, so I don't think the manufacturers love it as much as we do, no, but they I mean, don't. <laughs> it was just such an easy way for them to kind of get around telling you exactly how many grams of added sugar they're adding per serving. But mm-hmm. now it's just a big part of this new label is that it's all about transparency, you know, and the consumer, you know, it's obviously kind of confusing when you look at it, but when you have that transparency and you can see right there, the exact amount, you don't have to do all this guesswork and read the blah, 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 this and that, it just makes it so much easier. So I I agree. That's one of my favorite parts too. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, And then down at the bottom of the label, we still have a a little list of some vitamins and minerals and vitamins A and vitamin C are no longer required to be listed. Those two used to be required. So we don't have to list those anymore. Now the food companies are required to list instead potassium and vitamin D. You know, potassium is a mineral and vitamin D is obviously a vitamin. I mentioned those earlier when I talked about the fact that 80% of Americans are not meeting their requirements for vegetables, fruit, and dairy. So potassium and vitamin D, you know, vitamin D coming from things like dairy and then potassium coming from a lot of fruits and vegetables. When you're not hitting those recommendations, you're not hitting that the needs there for those vitamins. So and these are two common sources where we're we're not getting enough of these in the American diet. Yeah. A lot of Americans have deficiencies in, in both of these nutrients. Right, exactly. And potassium actually um we're looking at a lot of research now that's showing that increasing your and potassium can actually help with hypertension. And it's not exactly. just sodium, but that it's this interplay between sodium and potassium and right. the ratio there. So very interesting stuff. So you'll see that now on the new food label at the bottom, vitamin D and potassium. Iron and calcium are the other two. So there was always four. Um, and iron and calcium are remaining on the label because they are still very important. Other vitamins and minerals can be listed at the discretion of the food company, but are not required. And the other new thing is that actual amounts are listed. So milligrams and micrograms of the vitamins and minerals are listed now instead of just the percent daily values. 
And by the release of this episode, actually, so after January 1st, almost all food companies have updated their labels to, you know, with this new, this new label. And, but manufacturers of most single ingredient sugars, things like honey and maple syrup, and then also certain cranberry products actually have until July 1st of 2021 to make the changes. So I just thought that was interesting to note that pretty much everybody is now required to use this new food label. And by the middle of the year, everybody will be required. Yeah, you can see, look around in the grocery store now when you go, you'll see a lot of them and it's it's really cool. I'm excited about that. Yes. Um, and so another thing that we wanted to mention, just going back to the dietary guidelines, is that when you put something out there like this, you kind of want to be able to measure where are we at, right? So we have something called the Healthy Eating Index or the HEI. And it's a score of zero to 100 that takes the average of how well Americans are eating in alignment with the dietary guidelines for Americans. So in 2015, we had the last the last score and Americans scored 59 out of 100. So womp if womp. you, yeah, womp womp. <laughs> I mean, if you think back to, you know, if you got a test in school, you got a 59, probably would not be super thrilled. I'd right? be like grounded and if this yeah. was high school. Yeah. So <laughs> that's like an F. Um, so, you know, I don't want to look at this in a negative way. I think obviously it's just, it's really great that we have the ability to kind of score that, kind of see where we're at as a country and where we can do better. It's really just an opportunity for growth for us. <laughs> um, sounds like I'm giving like a job review or something. <laughs> These are your opportunities for growth. So what are your strengths and weaknesses? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but we can do better. I And you know what? I have to say, I honestly think that we will be doing better because we're at a point in the landscape of of what we have out there that manufacturers are creating that we have so many better for you products. You know, we have things out there like Zevia where we have a zero sugar alternative where we're not using artificial sweeteners. And there's things out there like chickpea pasta, which instead of just, you know, white grains, we have, you know, a high fiber, high protein alternative. I think we're seeing more and more of these better for you brands pop up, low sugar, no sugar yogurts. I just really love where things are going. And I really can see the future of food manufacturing going in that direction. So I think we're in a good place because we don't want to sacrifice that taste and sort of the nostalgia of what those foods bring us, which again is a huge part of these dietary guidelines. So I'm excited to see where where that goes. Yeah, I think that just to go off that really, really quick, I think that a big marketing factor used to be or like tactic, I guess, used to be um, to tailor to our senses and make sure that we get hooked on the product, like making it very palatable, making it like pretty much addicting, quote unquote, right? And now that I think we're becoming much more health conscious and like the majority of people are really make that a priority in their life now. Um, and they know, you know, it's not about just knowing like what things are bad for you and what things are good for you, but actually like implementing that. Right. So, but because the knowledge is now there, like most people know and understand like, okay, I shouldn't be eating processed foods and I should be eating more whole foods. These food companies can use that as a marketing tactic now. Right. And they're starting to do that. And they're starting to manufacture foods that are healthier for you, right? Instead of using the technology to make it addicting and make it the perfect amount of fat and sugar and whatever to make you want to keep going back for more. Now they can say, look, I've taken this soda and I've added fiber to it, or I've taken this whatever and I've added, you know, I've lessened the sugar and I've done this to the food to make it better for you, but it still tastes really good. So right. 
this is good for everybody, right? Because the, the companies are still making money and profiting, so it's good for the economy. And then we're not dying or <laughs> getting heart disease or diabetes right. because of it. And right? you vote with your dollar. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's what marketing is, is give the consumer what they want. And I think it says a lot that in previous years, what we wanted was that fat-laden, sugar-laden, high-sodium sort of thing. Whereas now we just have such a higher level of nutrition knowledge in the general population that we are now asking for these things and and manufacturers and marketers are seeing that. And so I think that's really exciting. Anyways, in summary, I think, you know, obviously we have a greater shift to focusing on the fact that food is more than just nourishment and that there are cultural aspects and personal preferences that come into, you know, food choice. Also, our budgets come into food choice. Accessibility comes into food choice. And, you know, I think this has been, you know, a greater part of the conversation in the nutrition community for, you know, in recent years. And I'm really glad to see this reflected in the dietary guidelines. And to just go back through a few, you know, trips or excuse me, tips, <laughs> trips. I think I'm ready for a vacation, and maybe that's where that came from. Um, but look at the nutrition label at the grocery store. Now that the nutrition label is updated, it's much easier. The serving size is going to be standing out, the calories. So just to kind of go through how to do that, you want to look at the serving size first. If you want a point of reference, you can look down at your fist. For most people, your fist is about the size of one cup. If you have a larger fist, it might be one and a half cups. So let's say we're doing an example where we're looking at cereal and the serving size is half of a cup. That's half of your fist size. For me, I'm not going to eat just that amount. So I'm going to have to multiply that by three because I'll probably eat one and a half cups. So then when you go down the nutrition label, whether it's the sodium, saturated fat or added sugar, you're going to multiply those numbers by three as well. So if added sugar was 15 grams, and we multiply that by three, well, now it's 45 grams. That might not be something that I want to even bring in the house because, you know, a conventional soda, for instance, is 40 grams of added sugar, just one beverage, and that's already over your, you know, recommended daily intake for uh, added sugar. So just being cognizant of where we find these things that we want to limit can do so much when it comes to what we're actually choosing. And just remember, food is more than nutrition. We say this on every podcast pretty much, but there's so many things that go into it. It's really important to just nourish every aspect of your health, not just the physical. Not It's not just about exercising and getting movement throughout your day or eating super healthy. It's really important to also just you know focus on your mental health and focus on the ways that you are able to be social even during quarantine and you know how that contributes to your nutrition choices and your traditions and things like that. So just consider yourself as a holistic being because you really are. And that really is holistic health is looking at the whole of yourself and every aspect that ultimately leads to health and well-being. So Anyways, we just wanted to thank you guys so much for being here with us today. I know this was a long one, but we were really excited to bring all the information to you guys about the new dietary guidelines. And we're going to put a few links in the show notes. We're going to link the actual dietary guidelines if you want to sit down and take a few hours to read the couple hundred pages that it is. Um, And so (laughs) we'll add some extra fun stuff in there. But thanks, guys. We love you. Thanks. discuss 
within this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding any changes to your dietary pattern, a medical condition, or your overall health and well-being.